Picture it, December 2017. If you're like me, you probably weren't concentrating on much else other than the ANC conference at Nazrek and wondering how much eggnog it would take to induce a Christmas Day heart attack in the event that Mrs. Zuma clinched the presidency. December is always such a confusing time in South Africa, I find, because on the one hand, you have time to reflect on the full horror of what corruption has done to your local municipality during the year, but on the other, the weather is so nice. But something else happened in December 2017. The results of the Progress and in International Reading Literacy Study, or PEARLS as it's shortened to, were published. I'm just going to call it PEARLS rather than the Progress and in International Reading Literacy, because PEARLS go with everything, as I think every fashion-conscious South African can agree. PEARLS documents worldwide trends in the reading knowledge of fourth graders, or grade fours if you're a young South African, or standard twos if you're over the age of 35. Basically, most kids are nine or ten in grade four. The reason they pick grade four is because typically it's in the fourth year of schooling that pupils have now learned how to read and are now reading to learn, if that makes sense. If you go to their lovely website, www.pearls.org, you can read all about how they do it. But luckily for you, I went and read all about it, so you don't have to. How it works is this. Grade four pupils complete a reading assessment in their mother tongue and then a separate questionnaire that addresses pupils' attitudes towards reading and understanding their reading habits. Pills has been running since 2001, and it's administered every five years. So they ran the last assessment in 2016, involving 50 countries all across the world, and after processing everything, the results were published in December 2017, NASREC month. So I could beat about the bush, but there's no nice way to say this. South Africa was placed last out of all 50 countries who participated in Pearls 2016. L-A-S-T. Last. The bottom. In fact, almost four in five grade four South African pupils fall below the lowest internationally recognized level of reading literacy. Just let that one sink in. Four out of five is about 80%. And before you make the point that this is about Isizulu or Isikosa children being asked to read in English or Afrikaans, no, the Pearl's reading test is only done in your mother tongue, the language you speak at home. The key findings are so depressing I won't spend too long on them, but you can guess how they break down. Pearls found that South African boys performed worse than girls, with 84% of those tested not being able to reach the lowest benchmark in comparison with 72% of girls. Pupils writing in one of the nine African languages attained the worst scores, which were significantly lower than those writing in Afrikaans or English, white kids. Children writing in Isikosa and Sepedi are the most at risk. More than 90% of pupils writing in Sitswana and Sepedi did not reach the lowest benchmark. Children who live in remote rural areas or townships have the lowest reading literacy scores, and the average class size internationally in Pearls was 24, but here in South Africa, the average class size is 45 pupils. So in summary, Pearls found that 80% of South African grade fours can't read properly. So I thought, what if we did a thought experiment? What if we just radically overhauled the whole South African education system? I'm talking starting from scratch, reimagining the whole way we do things, proverbially raising the whole thing and starting again. What would it look like? How would we do that? Sorry, I've been listening to a lot of Tracy Chapman lately because who can resist the barely restrained fury of the subaltern set to deeply moving acoustic guitar? That's when I heard that there is a South African school that has told its parents that it's intending to switch its education system over to the Finnish school system. This particular private school in Johannesburg will be transitioning to teaching its pupils using the holistic, collaborative and pupil-orientated approach that the Finnish education system uses, 
precisely because Finland is consistently ranked in the top percentile of education systems using any and all metrics. Who'd have thought that there was more to Finland than reindeer, the northern lights and high suicide rates? Then I noticed that the Finnish Minister of Education, Sunny Gran Lassonen, was here in South Africa in 2017 to talk about exchanges and partnerships with South Africa in education. And then I kept seeing these memes on Facebook talking about the Finnish education system and how it's one of, if not the best, education system in the whole world. When you go and read about it, then you catch the Finnish bug and you can't stop thinking about it. What if South Africa could adopt this amazing system? It could change our entire future. Let me give you a quick overview of the Finnish education system. In Finnish schools, they have very short school days and avoid homework wherever possible, usually opting for none at all. They place a heavy emphasis on free time and play. By law, teachers must give students a 15-minute break for every 45 minutes of instruction because that gives you a chance to absorb and think. There is also an emphasis on learning by doing and encouraging students to think and discuss and problem solve. But this doesn't mean noisy classrooms or like no order and structure at all. Quite the contrary. Finland's 62,000 teachers are professionals selected from the top 10% of the nation's graduates to earn a required master's degree in education. This means that teaching is one of the most revered professions in Finland with a relatively high barrier to entry. They are paid well and have much fewer contact hours than teachers in almost any other Western or African country. There are no mandated standardized tests in Finland, apart from one exam at the end of a student's senior year in high school. Think about that from South Africa's matric finals obsessed education culture. Just one exam at the end of your school career. I learned a lot of this information about the Finnish school system from Professor Hilary Janks, an academic who worked at Wits University for about 35 years in English teacher education. She was trained as a literary scholar and an applied linguist with expertise in language education and literacy, particularly critical literacy. A lot of Professor Janks' work focuses on the relationship between language, literacy and power, and she's taken a keen interest in the Finnish school system. I got Professor Janks on the line to ask her about Finnish schools and whether we might be able to learn anything for South Africa. Professor Jenks, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jessica. From what you were telling me, teaching is an extremely high prestige career in Finland. I mean, what are they doing differently in terms of uh, who becomes a teacher in Finland? Okay, well, first of all, to teach in Finland, you have to have a research master's degree. Now, what that means is that um, not just a master's degree, but a master's degree in which you have done a research report, a proper research report, proper research, and you know how to do research. I mean, that's the uh, point of having a research master's degree. So, so teachers are able to look at their own teaching or the work that's going on in their school or the research literature with really qualified eyes. That's one thing that um, affects the status of teachers in Finland. Another thing that affects the status of teachers in Finland is that they're well paid. Uh, mm. th there is a value attached to education in the community whereby teachers are highly respected. And um, the upshot of all of that is that it's very difficult and competitive to get into schools of education in Finland. They've got, they can pick and choose. They get thousands of applicants and they choose the best. Whereas in this country, um, education is not seen in that way. Um, in terms of university education, it's the lowest funded um, 
area of higher education by the Department of Education. So basically in education, we would have to take about four students um, for every science, one science student in terms of the way the subsidy system works. And, and the entry requirements for education tend to be lower than for, for, for other qualifications. That is the complete opposite in Finland. And so this emphasis on um, having a background in research and being able to view your own students and your own subjects as a potentially rich area of research where you can learn about them as well, it sort of seems to introduce a virtuous circle where the teachers are learning about their students, learning about uh, testing new theories and methodologies and then implementing it in their own classrooms, perhaps. Now, I think that's correct. And it's not necessarily that they actively do research on their students and write mm. it up and get a qualification. But they can ask the kinds of questions about what's happening in their classrooms or what's happening in the school. Or, you know, the big thing in education now is to have um, data-driven interventions in schooling. So, you know, if you give kids a test, that gives you information about what the kids have learned. And you need to be able to read that data in order to know how to intervene. So that's kind of what I mean by the research training. They can read the literature on education with a, a critical eye. They can look at what's happening in their classrooms with a, with a sort of critical analytic eye, and they can make sense of the data um, that they produce out of the, the work that kids do. Although, um, they don't do what we do here, which is test the kids all the time. So they're not producing masses of that data anyhow. But it's about having an orientation to thinking through um, the decisions they make and the effects of those decisions on kids. It seems to me that what underpins that is high levels of trust between the state and their teachers, because you have to you have to trust your teachers as being highly educated, highly motivated, and always having the best interests of their students front and center, um, and giving them also a lot of autonomy, I imagine, in that sort of system. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's, I mean, you've hit on something really important there, because they do, they train their teachers really, really well, and then they get out of their way. You know, they don't actually then spend a lot of money on surveillance or on uh, the results. You know, how the schools perform and how the children in those schools perform um, is really all they're interested in. So they, they trust the teachers to do the best by every single student. But they also, I mean, one of the key um, tenets of Finnish, Finnish education is collaboration, you know, communities of practice. So at every level in a school, the teachers are expected to collaborate with each other. So they would collaborate, all the grade one teachers would collaborate. But the grade one teachers, so that would be like a horizontal collaboration. But the, they would also do vertical collaboration so that they understand what is expected of the kid in, in, in kindergarten and grade two. And then the whole school, all the teachers as a, as a body are responsible for the success of every student. So they've set, they, they trained to work um, in a very reflective, that's the research, and very collaborative way to solve 
to solve, um, I don't want to say problems, but, the, but things that crop up either in the classroom or with individual students. It becomes something that the teachers as a team, working with the principal teacher, are collectively responsible for. And the other thing you need for collaboration and data-driven decisions is time. And, and this relates to something I've been so interested in about the Finnish system, which is the relatively low contact hours. I, I think I read that in primary school, the average is about three hours and 45 minutes of instruction a day. And they don't really have homework, or if they do, it's always less than 60 minutes a day. And, and so is that also about freeing up time for teachers to do exactly what you're talking about here, which is talk to other teachers? It reminds me of that idiom, if I had six hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend five of those hours sharpening my axe you know, just really letting teachers have the time to make sure that they are the best at their craft, they have the best inputs into their craft before they get into the classroom and have contact with students? Yeah, look, I mean, I think they um, I think they have less teaching time than we have because that's always a question, you know. So if you do so well, is it because you teach more? And the answer is no, generally we teach less. And it does provide, I mean, the, the fact that they teach less doesn't mean that the teachers aren't at school. The yes. teachers are at school. Um, they're working, they're preparing, they're talking to each other, they're collaborating, um, and there may be other activities going on for kids at school that are not sort of teacher-focused. So, um, yes, there is time in the system for, for teachers to do um, the work they need to deliver good quality education in conjunction with their colleagues. And actually collaborative work is sometimes more time consuming than just doing something on your own. It's my understanding, um, and you'll know more about this than I, that there's been some criticism in the US system of stripping out poetry and art from, from standardized national testing more and more and more in, in recent decades. So it was really interesting for me to see how much music and art and movement there is in the Finnish curriculum. I read that a Finnish grade five pupil will have 25 lessons a week and nine of those lessons are arts, music, crafts, sports. So it is just a very different approach to holistic education in terms of emphasis. I went to a lecture by uh, Paul Salzburg, who, who is one of the authorities on Finnish education. And uh, I mean, there are three bodies of literature that underpin Finnish education. And what's really interesting, as he was telling the Americans what they wanted to, what they could learn from Finnish education, is that these bodies of literature are all developed in America. And as he jokingly says, we use the research you produce and you are onto the next best thing as quickly as you can be. Um, so so the, 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 the three key things that, that he mentioned is is John Dewey, and um, which fundamentally is about learning through doing. Uh, Hill, can I just interrupt you there? So for our listeners, um, could you just uh, give us a sentence or two on who John Dewey is if they're listening to this and they're like, I have no idea who that person is. Okay. Jo John Dewey was, um, was an, an, a philosopher, an American philosopher who worked in the field of education. And, I mean, the main thing that comes out of his work for educationists is that the, the active involvement of the learner in actually doing in order to learn, mm. taking risks, making mistakes, learning from practice. 
So there are three tenants. The one tenant are Jewish principles of education. The second comes from um, Gardner, who's at Harvard University, on multiple intelligences. And the third one is also the, the work of coming out of America on, on communities of practice. Those are the three main theoretical bodies that they've taken from the U.S. Now, the whole point about multiple intelligences is that, um, you know, Gardner's, I think Gardner thinks, says there are seven different kinds of intelligences, which would include uh, verbal intelligence, musical intelligence, mathematical intelligence, um, auditory intelligence, you know, different kinds of intelligence. So the Finnish system really believes that every single child is capable of learning, that children learn in different ways, and that it's the responsibility of the professionals to be able to work out how different children learn and what they need in order to be able to learn. They also believe, I mean, the way they put it is that all children have special needs and the system has to attend to those special needs. So, I mean, kids don't go off to occupational therapists outside of school or to people who can help them if they've got dyslexia or ADD or whatever. All of that is, is analyzed, diagnosed within the school and the kids are given what they need in relation to the special learning needs that they have. Um, and all kids need something is, is their answer because people have um, like different intelligences. Mm. So they will work with all those intelligences, which is why you'll find art education, music education, um, in order to give everybody a chance to shine. And they, they try to help kids work out what they're good at, not what they're bad at, and then to think that through into relation, in relation to how they might proceed beyond schooling um, into um, sort of work-related education. So the emphasis is on development as opposed to comparison, because I sometimes feel the South African system is very, um, or certainly the, the Model C government system that I went through, there was a heavy emphasis on comparison as opposed to personal development. Well, you see, they don't test the kids, okay? okay. which is fairly... At all? No, not until towards right towards the end of, of high school, in the sense that the kids sit down and do formal examinations. So th the fact that they do so well in the international tests is interesting because the kids are not experienced test takers. Yes. However, a qualified teacher, you don't you don't need to set a test to know what a kid can do. You know, you can ask a kid a question and you'll know whether they've read a book. You can ask kids to do mathematical problems and if you analyze their answers, you'll see what they are or aren't capable of doing. Mm. In that sense, they're assessing their students all the time and and using those assessments those diagnoses to address what it is that students need rather than what each student needs okay rather than setting a test and then half the class fails the test 
And then you go on with your curriculum, your prescribed curriculum, which tells you exactly what you have to teach in week 13, irrespective of whether the students have understood anything from week 12. Okay, so the teachers are trained to um, observe children in the lower grades and to make assessments based on what students do in the work they do in the normal course of learning. So assessment is not formal, but it is ongoing with people who are trained to make those analyses. It's more like a conversation between the teacher and the students constantly, as opposed to this very sort of stressful uh, test, you know, where you have to sit down and, and perform your knowledge in a very particular kind of way. You know, when you say conversation, it's as though the teacher is addressing something with an individual child immediately in the moment. Mm. I don't know if that's how it works. Or if the teacher says, okay, I see these 10 kids are struggling with this, so in my next lesson, I'll give the 10 kids who are not struggling with this something to do, and I'll work with a small group and teach what I taught them before in a different way or intervene in that way. The point is the teachers are responsible for making sure that the kids learn. Uh, and you can't do that without checking what they've learned. They just don't do it in a formal, let's sit down and we'll all have a test and then you'll get marks and then we'll compare marks. And I mean, I think that's true in, in Scandinavia. I was teaching post-doctoral uh, students and I was required to set them assignments, uh, which I unthinkingly assumed I would have to evaluate and give a mark for. And the students just laughed at me. You know, they don't assess anything and I've, in, in their doctoral program. They don't, I mean, I had to say that they'd done it satisfactorily. And if they hadn't done it satisfactorily, I would expect them to redo it to the point where I was satisfied with it. I mean, that's more how it works, that people are given a chance to redo stuff until they've got it. Um, but those students worked harder than any students I've ever worked with before. And the one student who I thought did not do a very good presentation because she ended up doing a, a really boring PowerPoint when I'd actually asked for something um, more original, she was so devastated when I said to her that it really wasn't, it wasn't worthy of her, you know, that she could do better and that she'd chosen an easy option. She, she was, it was like I'd failed her, but actually I hadn't, mm. you know, I hadn't, but she really took the feedback very seriously. And I've never had students who've worked as powerfully with the feedback I've given them as the students that I taught in Scandinavia. So, I mean, there's some similarities across the, the um, in Sweden, that was, across the Scandinavian systems, because they talk to each other. But um, they don't do formal assessment. One of the common criticisms uh, that I can just preempt about the Finnish system, you know, people would say, oh, well, South Africa is 57 million people in 2018 and Finland is 5.5 uh, million. Uh, they're one of the richest countries in the world. Uh, we are a developing nation. But it, Finland does actually have its own history of um, challenges. It's a, 
it's this country with sort of desolate suicide rates. And in the 1990s, I think they had the highest suicide rates out of any OECD country. I was just doing some research before the interview and um, their suicide rate did fall, a sort of 25.8% between 2000 and 2011. And that was partly the result of a very deliberate national-led strategy to sort of improve mental health and improve suicide rates. And I couldn't help wondering if re-examining their education system was part of the sort of national introspection around their suicide rates. Um, I mean, I'm not expecting you to, you know, have have insight onto their suicide rate. That's a different podcast. But I do wonder if it is sort of a national response to an internal mental health epidemic on some level. I think it was more a response to a, a, a kind of failing education system. And I don't remember the details of that, although Salzburg does spell out the kind of crisis in education that led them to rethink their whole model. And I, I, don't, I don't quite remember it. Whether it had anything to do with um, the suicide rate, I'm afraid I just don't know. I can tell you if you live there where it's pretty dark for most of the winter and it's freezing cold, um, I'm not surprised their suicide rates are high. <laughs> yes, it is. it does sound like a brutally long winter. Long <laughs> and dark. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty sort of uh, what never-ending night. Yeah. However, interestingly, they have no snow days. You know, in America, <laughs> if the weather's <laughs> no bad, snows. you don't go to school. Nobody goes to school. Um, in Finland, where the weather's always bad, they always go to school. They never close schools for the weather. Yes, I think Canadians are, are not dissimilar. They're very hard pushed to have snow days. It's only the, the weak Americans and me and Joburg on that one day it snowed in high school that we all lost our minds. Yeah, but that's because um, you wanted to play in the snow. I think that's <laughs> the things would approve of that. Yeah, as, yeah, long, they as, would, as long as you're experiencing in the snow and playing with the snow, that's a form of education if you don't see it every day. What could South Africa learn from the Finnish model? I understand what, that you're saying it's a large, coordinated, integrated effort and that looking and pulling out, cherry picking sort of little bits that look good isn't exactly the answer. But what do you think we could learn as South Africa to make our own basic education better? Well, first of all, the, uh, we need to properly educate our teachers. We need to pay them properly. Uh, we need to value them more and um, we need to ensure that they're capable of doing the job. I mean, the, you know, not the Finnish teachers not only have like research expertise, they have expertise in the, the knowledge required to teach the subjects they have to teach. I mean, that's part of what the university education does. They are turning attention to what needs to go into higher education, you know, with the shocking pills results where, you know, our children are the most illiterate in the world based on, on those results. Mm. Um, they are really looking very carefully at what is needed in, in teacher education to ensure that um, teachers know how to teach kids to read and they know how to teach them how to read in different languages. I don't think you can change our education system by focusing on, on pre-service teacher education. A great deal of work needs to be done. 
on in-service teacher education. And in relation to that, you know, checking the quality of teachers, um, the setting tests to see if teachers are competent to teach, there's a lot of opposition from the unions. You know, the SAT is very strong. And so they resist change. And, you know, it, it, it's not easy for teachers to change. I mean, that's one of the things we've discovered. You know, they have got ingrained beliefs about what good education is. Mm. So, you know, the interventions are tricky. And the other thing that I think happens in South Africa is we always think that we're going to get change immediately. It took a long time for the new finished system, you know, to get into place, to mm. start to show results, to iron out difficulties, to start functioning properly. It didn't happen overnight. And, um, you know, we've had three curricula in South Africa since uh, 1994. The teachers are, they, they've got change fatigue. Um, they kind of don't even believe in the new curriculum because when's it going to change, you know? So mm. all of this in terms of getting on top of that. And um, and then we end up in, in pendulums. So the first outcomes-based education said, okay, we've had teachers who've been dictated to by the apartheid state, who've been told what to teach. We're going to do away with that now. and We're going to tell the teachers that all they have to do is achieve these outcomes with the kids and they can do it however they like. But if they've never done it, they don't know how to do it however they like. And they don't have the resources or the teaching materials or the textbooks or the readers to do that with anyhow. So then you get a, the pendulum swings the other way and now we've got a completely scripted curriculum where the teachers are told exactly what to do for every two weeks, this is what you have to cover. And you have to cover it, and so teachers cover it, irrespective of, of whether the kids have learnt it. And the point is, if you've got teachers covering material that they don't really understand themselves, that has been designed by somebody else, they can't deal with any of the kids' questions or don't find the answers anywhere because they haven't been trained to do that. So, I mean, turning this system around, it's like trying to turn the Titanic around. And a lot of us have been trying to do that for a long time. So I, I don't know what the magic bullet is. Certainly, I think if the kids, if we are producing kids who by grade four are not literate, they never catch up. They never catch up. It would just be so amazing in South Africa if we could give the time and attention and a, a sort of a passion to basic education and getting education not right but improving it substantially if we could give teachers um you know their salaries would be tax free for 10 years if we could make getting into teaching education one of the most prestigious careers if we could you know do these strategic skills exchange programs but it would as you say require a sort of change in the political setup of how education is viewed in South Africa in a way that it doesn't seem possible right now yeah but what do you do with the teachers who are already in place sure. who, who don't pitch up to work I mean absenteeism is huge there are hundreds of teachers who are kind of like on permanent sick leave because they're suffering from extreme depression 
Mm-hmm. Um, also, huge incidents of sexual assault and um, impregnation by teachers. I mean, this is something that something that I follow with interest, and I remain so frustrated by Sadhu's lack of um, energy and focus on this issue. You know, just sexual assault by teachers on their pupils is off the charts yeah. in South Africa. Well, you know, Sadhu will worry about their own salaries, but if the textbooks haven't been delivered in Pumalanga, you don't hear anything from them. So. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of malaise in the system. The teachers are being given an impossible task to do. I don't think that I could teach, necessarily teach, 50 children in a class to read. You know, how how do you work with 50 kids at a time when they're at, at different levels and have different interests and have different intelligences? I mean, 45 is supposed to be the maximum class size. That's huge. And with teacher absenteeism, you can double that because then the kids move into somebody else's class. So then you're sitting with a class of 90 kids. Now, you know, you need a lot of materials. You need a lot. You need a lot of reading materials. You need. I mean, one of the problems has been like with the pearls tests, for instance. Let me let me just give you two examples. The first thing is that this test where we bottom in the world is a mother tongue test. We know that in South Africa, children take that test in whatever the medium of instruction is at the school that they go to. And that might mean that Zulu kids are taking that test in Isikosa. Or because not all kids go to the school, they go to the school that's closest to them Sure. And that may not be a Zulu-speaking school. Or they go yeah. to a school where there's a feeding scheme, uh, you know, and, and the, the minimum instruction might be Tswana. But the Zulu school next door hasn't got a feeding scheme. You know, so parents make their decisions based not so much on the minimum of instruction. And so kids, first of all, they're not necessarily taking it in their home language, and it's a, a home language test. And secondly, they're taking their test in grade four, which is the year that you switch from learning an African language to learning in English. Mm. So the literacy stuff becomes really complicated because it's in the year of the switch, which is one of the reasons why they're now introducing English from, from grade naught for children. Mm. Last question. Um if our listeners are interested in, in Finnish education and learning more about the subject, are there any books or resources that you recommend they seek out? Well, I think Paul Solberg is a really good place to start. It's P-A-H-L, and then I think S-A-H-L-B-E-R-G. Um, and his book is called Finnish Lessons 2. Um, and it's a very accessible book. I mean, parents can read it, teachers can read it. Um, Salva worked at uh, Harvard for several years and then just when Trump came to power decided to go back to to Finland also I think he, he was in despair and I, and I think that one of the reasons that he went back to Finland was he wanted to put his own kids into Finnish education schools so you know the the the, the kind of competitiveness and the the overscheduling of kids, um, they don't really do in Finland. They mm. believe that kids need to play, 
and learn from play and learn from, you know, imagination and doing their own thing, learn from experience. Um, and so in some ways, I think um, when they do focus on, on teaching them, um, then they work hard. Yeah, it's a much more spare but potent approach to education, which, um, yeah, is amazing. I wish I'd had it myself. Yeah. So, you know, what we really need is we don't need short-term solutions. We need to pay teachers properly, and we need to make sure that they know what they're doing because too many of our teachers don't. And we need to give them better working conditions, smaller classes, the right kind of materials to work with, um, the knowledge base they need. But it's a huge, it's a huge challenge. And so what we end up doing is we end up saying, okay, well, you can pass with 40% and then 30%. And then our matric results look good, but you can't do anything with a 30% matric pass. Professor Hilary Janks, thank you so much. That was completely fascinating. And um, yeah, I'd love to continue this conversation about how, how we can fix basic education in South Africa. We'll, we'll have to do it in another podcast, though. But thank you very much for your time. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for your patience, commuters. And yes, yes, I got your complaints about not having updated the episodes fast enough. The good news is our next episode is on one of my favorite topics in the whole world, the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, and what his laser-sharp focus, inspiring leadership style, and deep competence is meaning for America and South Africa in 2018. Stay tuned, as he likes to say. And remember to check out previous episodes on Russia, North Korea, China, Bitcoin, and expropriation without compensation at www.thecommute.co.za.